Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. I'm back from the Taipei Film Festival. Welcome to Lewis Ku Cinema. MTR has a problematic ad. Netflix's first Indian series is out now. And our films this week, Us and Them and Animal World. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us once again from his news desk inside a gambling ship called Destiny is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi, everybody. Hey there, Paul. How's it going? All right, sir. You are back from uh, Taiwan and the Taiwan Film Festival. How was it? Yeah, um, the Taipei Film Festival, uh, this is a 20th year. Uh, I This is my longest trip yet, actually. I've been there four times now. It's my fourth time. And I go there twice a year now for film festivals. Um, they also have the Golden Horse uh, Film Festival. It's also fantastic. Um, I love it. I mean, I hate... The thing is, I talked about this on my Twitter a little bit. Um, the way the Taipei Film Festival works, the ticketing work, is that you have to go to 7-Eleven. They have a, a very cool ticketing system called the iBond. So it's a ticketing machine. People can work the printer using it. They buy train tickets. They buy movie tickets, concert tickets, and so so on and so forth. It's great for locals. Terrible for foreigners trying to buy tickets to the festival. So it means that, first of all, it's not English-friendly at all. Uh, so that's fine with me. I mean, I can buy tickets. But the thing is, um, it means that I, when I got there, first of all, I couldn't get popular shows because I couldn't buy tickets until I got down there to Taiwan, uh, until I land. And then I had to um, stand 40 minutes because I was trying to buy 30-something tickets. Um, and the way it works is that when you get a ticket, you get a receipt. All right, And then you take it to the cashier and pay, which is great, but you have to pay it within 10 minutes of printing. So when you're trying to pick seats and buy tickets and they have to input a, a phone number a fake phone number in my case and trying to and trying to get the paid so i was back and forth in between the ticket system and the counter like four times uh trying to get all my tickets so that was already a bit of a pain but the thing is i i already had this i knew this was happening so i had a lot of backup films and i had a very comprehensive schedule by the time i got there so it was smooth despite taking 40 minutes um, other than that, it was it was great. I mean, I watched about average about four films a day. I ended up watching thirty three screenings, so that includes like short film programs, um, plus four VR programs. This year, they they went all out on VR. They set up um, an entire floor above the main venue or the the flagship venue, so to speak. Uh, they set up three rooms, and each room sits about ten people, and they would play different VR programs. Uh, all day, so I went and got myself four tickets, and I and I experienced um, these VR things for the first time. I've never watched anything like that because I don't have an Android phone nor a Google VR set, so that was my first time experiencing that. Um, it was fun. So um, there were very diverse programming. Um, 
tend to be a bit on the artsy side, but you know that's good because I get to sort of expand my horizons a little bit. And you get I got to watch some local films and local shorts. Um, just a fantastic festival and a fantastic trip. Very good. That sounds interesting. I mean, comparing with your because you you talked similarly about the some of the challenges in getting tickets for was it the uh, what was the film Tokyo. festival the Tokyo one you know yeah. also not being super user friendly for say international folks and having to go to kiosks to buy tickets right like kind of like at Seven no, Eleven or something or no Tokyo is Tokyo is fine because Tokyo they allow foreigners to buy tickets so the two most accessible film festival for me. Are, are Busan and Golden Horse because you can get you get tickets at the same time as everyone else. Tokyo has the same system, but the thing is their their server crashes every single year. The ticket ticket go on t- tickets go on sale, um, and so last year when I finally went back and I was trying to buy tickets, it was an insanely insane pain in the ass trying to trying to even get into the server, and I had to I had to repeat it multiple times because they. They they try to um, alleviate the stress on the server by reopening different ticketing times for different sections of the festival. Which means, if you had trouble getting to the server for one section, you're going to encounter the same thing the next day because that the stress on the server is going to be the same every day because there are appealing films that everyone wants to watch in different sections, and and that was real pain. Even though I got to buy tickets uh, ahead of time. Um, so yeah, no ta- Taipei to me is the most inconvenient one, um, but the thing is, I I just adapt, you know, like okay, I know it's gonna be like that, so I I know that the most popular films are gonna get sold out quickly, so I set up backup films, so you know I I know that maybe I know literally like like hours ahead before I arrive in Taipei, I know the ticketing status, I know which films are sold out and which films are not, so I just like okay. I had a backup film in that time and a backup film in that time. It just takes a lot more planning, and that's that's just how it is for film festival trips when you're trying to watch a lot of films a day, and and you just you just gotta like be more flexible. Um, so um, the actual process, the, the the anxiety is a bit. The first two or two visits or so, the anxiety was there, but now I'm used to it. I'm like, okay, so I don't get to watch it. I'll I don't get to watch this film. I don't get to watch that film. I mean. I have to accept that those are those are usually local films anyway, and local films do eventually get released, and I, I'll be able to watch them. So luckily, because I'm there for a week, and that means none of the weekday, I, I had no trouble with any of the weekday screenings. In fact, um, a lot of the sort of more artsy stuff, or well, not artsy stuff, because I tend to read reviews before, so I know I try to pick stuff that I know I would like. Um, and but then the thing is, it's still like the European stuff, the South American, Latin American stuff that I picked. Um, they were actually not very well attended anyway which is kind of sad but still that was great for me because i got to buy tickets just two or three days ahead of time and i still got a great seat excellent well it sounds like you had a good time and i'm sure you had lots of good food to go along with good movies uh well i i encountered a bit of a, a stomach problem on before i left hong kong and i thought it might get fixed in a day or two but uh it kind of affected me the most of the trip um, but I just adjusted. I mean, oh. you know, they're, I mean, Shimon Ding. So Shimon Ding is, is like the Mong Kok of Taipei and, um, you either find food or you don't. And I, again, it's about being flexible. So, um, I think I lost a few pounds actually. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you're feeling better to be sure. So, 
yeah, yeah, I got better the last couple of days, and I still had my spicy hot pot. I got my uh, uh, um, crazy, crazy uh, Japanese uh, tempura rice. I got my yeah, I got pretty much everything. Most things I want to eat, I fit. I managed to fit it in by the last couple of days, which is good because I was feeling a bit burnt out. But to be honest, by the 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 seventh day mm. I was there, um, I was kind of burning out, and because I had seen everything I wanted to see by then so the films i picked were kind of fillers and i weren't i wasn't so sure about them and i my suspicions were correct um but but you know i had more more rest time and and i i, I managed to fit in the food and i went dvd shopping of course um so it was a, it was a very very fulfilling trip all in all um films um the films this year more more mostly pretty good especially the local stuff i picked i watched um two shorts programs um, that was an excellent, excellent short film, a uh, 37-minute film. I think it's called 2923. It's, the, um, it's a new film by actually experienced director. She, exper- uh, she, wa- she directed a film, Sunny Yu directed a film called The Kids before, which was a 45-minute short for public television, but actually she made a feature-length version of it. Um, and this is her new short film, and it was fantastic. So uh, I got to see that, and I got to see some very promising um, other short films. I watched a fantastic documentary called Our Youth in Taiwan, um, which is about uh, two uh, activists in, in Taiwan's uh, recent social uh, movements. One of them is from mainland China, so that's interesting. And the other one was one of the sort of leaders uh, of the Sunflower Occupation. Um, and that was a very fascinating uh, film because it's not the typical sort of feel good. Um, uh, oh, look at our young people! Look at how great they are. Instead, it's, it's a bit of a downer because it doesn't things don't turn out well for these two. Um, as as history would would t- people who are familiar with with these things in Taiwan would know. Um, so so it made that uh, actually there was a documentary that Joshua Wong documentary on Netflix. It made it look like a very like a cheap web documentary made by like a content farm. Uh, because our youth in Taiwan was so good, um, so I enjoyed that, um, and a couple of you know French, European films and Latin American films. So those are not worth talking about on this podcast. But uh, yeah, all in all, a very good trip, and I really look forward to going back in uh, November for Golden Horse. All right, and I guess I mean among the thirty-three films, the question is, how many did you sleep through? Oh God! <laughs> Actually, um, about. Half, maybe less than half, less than half, less than half. Because there are films I watched out. So thirty three include like The Incredibles and and Ant Man. So I watched films outside the festival and a couple of Korean films mm. um, that we really wanted to watch. Um, and I only slept at one of those outside of uh yeah yeah I think um, festival. I managed to do well in quite a, quite a bit. So maybe less than half. Um, a bit less tired than last time, but you know you get. You, you kind of get, you know, it, 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 it does, it is very hot. It's summer. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop making excuses. There's one very interesting note, and I noted that in my Twitter. Um, there was a film that I watched called Holiday, and I didn't realize that Taiwan has this. So Taiwan has uh, multiple ratings. They have something, the, the, the sort of most extreme one is, is um, uh, restricted, which is like no one, no one under 18 can be admitted. But there are some films that are so extreme that they call it sort of the, the ultra restricted, which means that everyone has to sign a, a, a release form, um, essentially uh, claiming that they know what they're walking into and that any any psychological or physical um, 
damage that they get is essentially you know their own fault. <laughs> um, so, so the film I watched was Holiday. It's a it's a I think it's a British no Danish film. It's a Danish Dutch production. Um, it was a Sundance. If you guys look it up, you see why because there's a very um, extreme rape scene um, that essentially required that treatment. But uh, so it wasn't that bad. It's not the worst thing I've seen. But I was just very uh, amused that. Instead of banning the film, they just make people sign a release form saying it's your own fault you get messed up. So I, I, I love that about about that 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 in Taiwan um, that they don't ban instead of banning films, they just like make it your own fault if you like have psychological damage. Hmm. I wonder what they do with like Eli Roth films and things. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, one of the films that that got that treatment was Blue is the Warmest Color, which is a uh, the lesbian drama which had like very hardcore sex scenes and. And so usually these are for films that have like very like extreme sexual content, and mm. um, I'm not sure about like violence, but I think Eli Roth films like get like just to get 18, they get the 18 rating. But right. um, yeah, so this is the first time I encountered this extreme rating. Reminds me of the old NR17 days, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like you had a good trip, um, and we're going to be talking perhaps about some more of those films that you saw, perhaps in the future. Um, but for now, let's get into our news. Here at the news desk, uh, very interesting news day actually today, uh, because two of our first stories came from in one day. First of all, uh, yeah, Louis Ku has a cinema now. So the story is that the uh, cinema in art, the art center, the Hong Kong art center in Wan Chai, um, they usually get a sponsorship deal. So one point it was named after a major donor. Uh, a couple years ago, it was named after Agnes B, the fashion chain. Um, because they sponsored the cinema, they have a sponsor- sponsorship deal with the cinema, and now, um, but they lost that deal a couple, uh, I think a year ago or something, uh, after we mo- they remodeled, uh, so now they have a new sponsor, and it's One Cool Films, which is Louis Koo's, um production company, so they've struck a three-year deal, I think, with the Art Center to uh, sponsor the cinema, uh, so then the the art center is now naming the cinema after Lu- the boss Louis Ku. So yes, officially we have a Louis Ku cinema in Hong Kong. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yes. Yes. Um, one Ku will sponsor the cinema for, for three years, and in exchange, um, they will get to curate uh, programming. Um, they said that they will put on. Um, uh, films that are chosen by local filmmakers, young filmmakers, and local film professionals. They'll also host uh, screenings of uh, films by young directors. I'm guessing young directors that are produced by One Cool and also other classic films. Currently, the Art Center holds uh, actually quite a bit of retro, uh, a lot of um, retrospective screenings. So, um, Hong Kong Hong Kong International Film Festival Cinefan Program is is held there. Um, Golden Scene, the local film distributor, they hold uh, screenings of some of their films there, I think, now once a week. Um, uh, that includes, like, maybe sneak previews of, of, of new films uh, as well. Um, so I'm not sure whether one cool taking over the cinema will affect the programming that much. Um, I'm sure the, whole, the film festival will continue to be able to hold their screenings there. And I'm sure that... Um, uh, a lot of art films will will continue to be able to screen there, um, but you know it's cool that one cool get get a place to to screen local films. There'll be one more venue for local films. It's just whether the question is whether it would just all be one cool films or whether there will be films from other companies. Yeah, I, I imagine they're going to be running Meow twenty four seven, right? Oh dear God! 
Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. That's what I'm afraid of. Like, it will that will that affect? Not just with that effect, uh, whether the the art films will will continue to have a have a have a venue to be shown is whether yes, Louis Cool will be playing Meow twenty four seven. Maybe they'll maybe they'll put like a they'll get the Meow suit and put it in on the big display case right by the entrance. That'd be cool. The, uh, the thing is, I'm I'm quite surprised by this because uh, Louis Cool has always been very quiet about his ties to the company, like. From what I've heard, like people who ask him about his, one cool, like he almost outright denies that he has anything to do with the company. But everyone in the industry knows that one cool is Lewis Cool's company, mm. um, and and probably connected to, uh, as I was told, connected to Sun Entertainment, which you know owns, which is owned by a company that runs a casino in Macau. So there are a lot of sort of weird business dealings in there. But um, it's weird that yes, this is the most sort of outright. Um, um, acceptance of Louis Ku's ties to One Cool. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, really, if in in seriousness, if they use this as a platform for his films, though, like you know, his coming science fiction film and anything else that he stars in, at least coming from his production company, you know, if this becomes a sort of a go-to venue for those films. I mean, do you think that's possible? And is that moral? I mean, <laughs> it's a business, I, I, right? I, I don't think that they'll be running like Mao and the Trough or things like that. I mean, those are like commercial films that have no problem getting uh, releases anywhere. I think what one cool um, is running into the frustration they're running into is getting their smaller films into mainstream cinemas. Um, they do produce some smaller local films, um, or they do distribute smaller local films that have trouble getting, you know, good time slots in local cinemas. So I think that's something that they're trying to battle as they produce more and more younger talents, or try and look for more younger talents um, and produce these smaller scale films. Um, and if that's what it's used for, then then all the more power to them. It's great. Um, and I'm glad that you know Louis Ku is making six year six movies a year if if that's what he's using his money for. Um, so no, I I doubt that you know Warriors of Future would have to play in the Art Center Cinema. No, I I think that film would do just fine. I think their bigger commercial projects would do just fine. But uh, I really hope they don't abuse their power and really do use it as a platform for um, young Hong Kong filmmakers, even those that are not produced by One Cool. All right. Well, speaking of platforms, you're going to tell us about the MTR. Yeah, so um, the Hong Kong MTR, um, that's the subway operator here, um, having a huge, huge PR crisis lately uh, over um, uh, shoddy construction on their new um, line, train line. Um, there's a lot of scandals about it, about how the, the construction firms are, they are, they aren't holding the construction, construction firms accountable. Um, and essentially, and of course their usual breakdowns and, we, uh, and, and, and malfunctions, people are really fed up with the MTR these days. And to make things worse, they've, um, produced an ad, uh, recently, but the thing is, this actually is a continuation of a campaign that they started last year. I think it was uh, actually a ad campaign that is an animation based ad, ad campaign. But the thing is, this um, it was always just print ads. So, uh, and by the looks of the, the, the visual style, you already you can already tell. Like, hey, wait a minute, that looks awfully like the works of Makoto Shinkai, the the guy, the director who made Your Name, and he has a very distinctive style. Uh, his films are all pretty much the same visual style. They all very uh, adhere to reality. They all very um, 
uh, they they have that. Um, I don't know how to explain it in in terms of like aesthetics, but there's that certain quality that you see yeah, and you know okay, that's it's a, a, a very distinctive kind of color palette that he uses, especially yes. for the environmental aspects and the, yeah, the very geography. vivid. Yeah, very vivid and very real because he he always likes to make things look photorealistic. Um, but 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 you know the print ads I already saw them and I already knew they were problematic. I was like, hey, that looks awfully like Makoto Shinkai. But the thing is, they didn't stop. They just released the video the animation version of that 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 ad campaign, and it looks even more like your name. <laughs> and um, I think we have an, a link up there. Uh, I'll put a link up in the show notes, or uh, Paul will get it up there, and you guys can tell for yourself. But um, yeah, it looks awfully like Makoto Sh- the, your name, specifically your name, not just Makoto Shinkai's film. I'm specifically your name, especially the uh, the, the, the 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 short title, across, you know, in front of blue sky. I mean, yeah. that's just take it straight out of the the that that film. And of course, the comment section people have uh, in, have a great time, have field day with MTR. Example, they they calling it your your your, your counterfeit. Uh, <laughs> Um, they're saying, "Oh, your your copy, your uh, your shoddy construction, <laughs> your uh, your construction problems, things like that." Uh, yeah, the netizens and netizens are calling for accountability, and I'm I've seen the ad, and I'm like, if Comics Wave, this I'm a Kotoshin guy's company, if they see these see this ad, unless they help produce it, they really should consider suing someone. Yeah, have you I mean, yeah, I watched the ad on the the Twitter link you posted, and it, and, you know, it's very, it's extremely recognizable. Except, and this is where I think they'd probably get into trouble legally. The character animation is kind of terrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the character does the background designs, the the color palette, yeah, all that is very, you know, exactly what they're going for, like you say. But the the actual two characters is the boy, this boy and girl who have casual encounters on the MTR and, you know, the, the romantic tension, all that. It just, it's not up to the standard, you know, that his character animation has. So there's that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if he yeah, wants to go after is, it, I guess, you know, he could try. Um, the, funny, the funny thing is, um, even your name was actually produced, was no, because Makoto Shinkai has a very small operation and and he's not a, they didn't give him much money. Not even your name. Even your name was made on a fairly low budget because that no one knew that film was going to be a huge hit. So even that film was made on a, a fairly low budget. But of course, you know, Japan being Japan and having that history of animation, it looks amazing. Yes. Right. Because, yes, you know, you got the talent. Um but yeah, here it just looks like a real pale version. In fact, another some netizen has even made like a uh, a video has has redubbed the video with the song from your name, <laughs> just just to make it and and adding and then overdubbing it with Japanese dialogue. But in the subtitles are all, all about like um, all the all the MTR all the MTR con- uh, controversies, <laughs> like oh the train's yeah. broken down again. Oh my god, I'm in a rush or something <laughs> like that. I just found like someone even like took the your name photo, and then took out the film's title and just replaced it with the MTR logo. <laughs> I wish I could post it, but I don't know how to post it. Um, but yeah, it, it's the the netizens are having a few day with this, but I think the MTR doesn't really care. Um, they really should stop this ad campaign. I mean, they should have known from last year. Now right. on to some Netflix news. Yes, so um, Netflix uh, expanding their scope in Asia, as we all know by now. Uh, they're producing their first 
Taiwan shows they they um, secured the distribution right for a very very high profile Korean drama recently. Uh, One of the stars Lee Boon Hoon, so I mean that's a huge deal. Uh, so uh, this week they released their first Indian series. Um, the show is called Sacred Games. It's based on a novel, and I'm super excited about this because it's directed by one of my favorite uh, Indian directors working today is Anurag Anurag Kashyap. Um, who who made uh, Gangs of Wasipur? Um, he made Ugly. He made Bombay Velvet. Um, he's one of those sort of subversive Bollywood film. He's not really a Bollywood filmmaker. He's an Indian director. He's an Indian filmmaker because he doesn't do the song and dance stuff. He makes very dark films, um, and he makes very serious films. And and he's one of those few Indian directors who can really sort of get a go to the film festivals around the world because he makes very serious films and not nothing. He doesn't do that Bollywood stuff. Um, so for him to do Netflix's first Indian series is, is really exciting for me. And his co-director, um, I forget his name at the moment and I probably can't even pronounce it by the time I see it. But he's also um, he works for um, Anurag's, Anurag Kashyap's uh, a production company, Phantom. Uh, he's made uh, Lutera, which is uh, a film I like a lot, and and also Udan, uh, another film that I really like. So the two of them working together on Netflix's first Indian series, that's very, very exciting for me. Um, it seems, it looks like a very dark, uh, one of those cops and robber shows, like a cops versus gangster type of thing. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I've definitely put it on my queue, a queue with a lot of love shows. But it's definitely on my queue, and I probably will catch, catch try to catch it as soon as I can. But yeah... Um, it's out now worldwide, uh, Sacred Games, uh, and actually Phantom is also working on an, another uh, show for Netflix, I think. It's called Ghoul, and it'll be out, I think, October. That's sort of a, more of a horror anthology type of thing, um, and that'll be out later this year. So uh, lots of exciting um, things coming out of uh, Netflix in India. Yes, indeed, and, and Netflix in general, too. I mean, uh, just a quick bit of news updates. The second Godzilla animated film the the second one is due to be released um uh later this month uh, i believe on the 18th of july so that's been confirmed uh so if you're a godzilla fan look forward to that i've also seen a bit of news that apparently they are producing a netflix produced ultraman um that's going to be released on netflix next year in 2019 um, right, but uh, the details that I've read, it's not like a traditional Ultraman. It's more like a Giver kind of Ultraman in that they don't; these Ultramen don't grow big like traditionally. They, but they basically just become armored humans, more like uh, Rangers, you know, uh, Power Rangers, um, Sentai kind of things, and they fight, I guess, normal-sized monsters. But uh, still, you know, it's a ways off. So you know, who knows? Uh, how many of these details may be correct, but again, more uh, Japanese goodness coming to a Netflix near you, so pay attention to that. Um, and I guess the last bit of Netflixy related news, too, is related to one of our reviews this week, and that is Animal World, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, Paul, did you end up finishing those Japanese shows on uh, on Amazon? I haven't started Tokyo Girl. I finished Sion Sono's uh, Tokyo Vampire Hotel and what a ride that was. Um, thinking of either doing a written review or coming back and talking on about that on the show because there's a lot to be said about that thing, <laughs> and I'm just not sure where to start yet. 
Not um, a lot. I mean, the fact that they dragged out that plot for so many episodes, maybe not so much. <laughs> uh, but it goes in some really weird places uh, by the end. And um, But it was entertaining nonetheless. And there's two others. Um, I forget the name of the third one, but the one that you recommended, Tokyo Girl, is there. And I want to start that. But I've only just finished, we only just finished up uh, the current second season of Terrace House Opening New Doors. And, um, of course, I also marathoned the other one you recommended, I Nord- Love Wagon. Uh, Love Wagon, which I ended up falling in love with, and I'm, like, desperate for the, the new season to come out. Um, Don't you uh, just love Shy Boy? Shy Boy, yeah, is was great. And, I mean, it, talk about a, a, a binary difference between two reality shows, between that this and Terrace House, the slow simmer that is Terrace House versus this, which is so traditional... So much traditional, just typical reality TV in terms of crazy characters and stuff. But I ended up loving it by the end and, and just wanting a lot more of it. Well, but the thing is, this this one is very different because, I mean, look at how they emphasize how these people go to different places and they learn yeah, yeah. from the, the countries they go to. Unlike it's, American yeah, shows where they just go and exploit the, sh- the crap out of, I almost said the S word, the crap out of the places they visit. Yeah, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's it's got that travel aspect of it built into it which is great but it's so overproduced it's so i mean it's just so <laughs> staged at times i mean the whole the whole way they set up the thing so if you're not familiar with the show basically if a boy or a girl chooses to want to be together they have to go to the driver of the van and get a ticket yeah. and they get two tickets one for themselves and one for the person that they have affection for and then they have to give the ticket to the person and then the next morning the person comes out and decides if they're going to go back to Japan with them and become a couple or they're going to stay on the show. And it's just so, it's like, it's like production 101 in terms of, you know, <laughs> drawing things out and, and little cliffhangers and things. And it's just, and it, it's, but it's still a lot of fun. I mean, if, and I'm again saying this as somebody who uh, typically I do not like reality TV, but um, I want to, it took me a while. It took me a lot longer than Terrace House to get into it. I want to say by the, sixth or seventh episode in i was kind of you know it it had won me over and by the end it just charmed my socks off so um yeah i'm i I want more of that yeah there's another um a reality a japanese reality show on on netflix that i watch it's also co-produced with uh netflix is that one called love real yeah i looked at that one i i i hate it i mean it was so trashy but the thing is it's super trashy you're talking about overproduced that's super overproduced and super cheap it was shot over three days there's like nine episodes and it's super trashy and it's really bad and you're just thankful how good terrace house uh was produced but i still finished it in three days so yeah. I, I don't know yeah i looked say, at that but... one and just based on the description i was like nah this one's not for me but i think i nori love wagon is really good because um it's different enough from Terrace House because, again, it's got that travel aspect built in. They go to different countries. You see them, you know, engaging in different cultures. And for the most part, I mean, it's it's generally a nice show. I mean, a couple of the characters have outbursts at times, and I won't spoil that. But um, it's still fun. It's just a lot of fun. So you can check that out if you so desire. When we come back after this short musical break, we're going to talk about our films this week with Kevin's review up first of Us and Them. Oh, 
我是方小小。And welcome back. So Kevin's review this week, "Us and Them," coming from director Renee Liu. Yeah, so this is a double special, double、uh, e-screen episode.、Uh, very rare double e-screen episode.、Uh, so I'm going to cover、um, a film that's already on Netflix, so we can all watch it out there. It's called "Us and Them." It's the directorial debut of Renee Liu. She's a pop star and, of course, an actress that, of course, a lot of you know from you know. The personals, or、uh, were about thieves, or Happy Birthday, which she actually wrote the story for, I believe.、Um, so this is not her first time around film,、uh, behind the scenes work or writing stories.、Um, I mean, she's also a, a writer who writes short stories or novels, things like that.、Um, So this is her directorial debut, and the film stars Jim Boran and Joe Dong Yoo. Renee Liu does not appear in front of camera at all,、um, which is a good thing.、Um, Not not because she's a terrible actress, but okay, I, I feel like I'm digging a hole. But no, she she stays behind the camera here the whole time. She doesn't really make her presence known.、Um, she's really trying to make it as a filmmaker, and I think really helps the film here.、Um, so the story,、uh, years after the breakup, Jan Ching, played by Jang Bo Jin Boran, and Xiao Xiao, played by Zhou Dongyu, reunite. In a plane on their way back to Beijing after Chinese New Year, over the course of one night, the two recount their relationship from their fateful meeting on the train to their painful breakup.、Um, so, as I said earlier, this is not Renee Liu's first storytelling,、um, I guess, effort.、Uh, like I said, she wrote. Uh, I think she wrote the story for original story for Happy Birthday. If you remember that, also Louis Ku. See, Louis Ku cannot escape our show.、Um, that that was the well, first. We're gonna change this to the Louis Ku podcast. How about that? Yeah, to Louis Ku. <laughs> Every Hong Kong film podcast will have Louis Ku. If you're doing a Hong Kong film podcast and you do not talk about Louis Ku every once in a while, you're not doing it right.、Um, so, so here's there's there's the obligatory Louis Ku reference.、Um, So this is another story of the one that got away, sort of like Happy Birthday, right? It's about the one that got away.、Um, so there's nothing really new here. A lot of、um, you find a lot of these、uh, Taiwan-esque, Hong Kong-esque love stories tend to be about the one that got away.、Uh, I'm not sure if there's a cultural reason for it or whatever.、Um, even I've written at the one that got away script when I was in film school. I think everyone, every storyteller has at the one that got away story.、Um, and Renee has written her second one here.、Um, So, like I said, there's nothing really new here,、um, but it's really about the characterization, the emotions that win the day.、Um, the characters are really well drawn out. There's a very clear difference. They, she sketches these very clear characters with real personalities. For example,、um, so when Jian Cheng and Xiao Xiao they first meet, they're just friends and they live in Beijing. They're they're not living together, but they're they're these you know two people from small town up in Beijing. Um, trying to trying to make a living and trying to fight their way up a society and 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 Xiao Xiao、uh, the girl she wants to do so by finding a rich guy and there's a very strong strong sort of drive for her to do that and Jin Boran Jian Ching the character who likes her of course then sort of equates. Success with getting her love, her love, because he's sort of been had a, he has a crush on her for a while, and then they eventually uh, uh, become a couple.、Um, but it's that it's that courtship process. It's a very drawn out courtship process, and it's really more about these characters 
it's a uh, it's a micro story about the daily struggles of millennials um trying to make it big um because the film is takes place over sort of a 10 year period between 2008 to 2018 and that was sort of the period that you had china's huge economic rise and a lot of people just think about the money and how everyone sort of got rich overnight but they don't they don't tell the stories that these people sort of caught these millennials these young people who are trying to make their way up that ladder in that society and these guys they spend most of the story poor living in these sort of um uh what's the what's the flat that we call here in hong kong the ones where they divide uh, subdivided flats subdivided flat, yeah. um yeah they live in like a small subdivided flat in beijing and you know um and one and uh jen ching is trying to become a game maker while xiao xiao um picks up all sorts of odd jobs and you know these are not the stories that we hear about we hear about the we see the the professionals you know the guys who live in huge flats who drive nice cars and and you know like the x-files series with uh hong kong those those guys have no problem with money they just care about relationships here it, it, their their economic situation seeps into their to their love life as as it does for you know in real life so there it, it really um so the question of whether success and money can buy love sort of clouds over these people and and rightfully so it's very much down to earth and you really feel do feel their frustration and uh, and you feel you relate to these people a lot more than other those other chinese romantic comedies where it seems like no one has to worry about money um jim Bora and joe don't you make a very winning couple um they they don't shy away from from the whole uh, the the affection. They're not you know they're like a real they they seem like a real couple. They're the way they hug, the way they they kiss, the way they yeah um, the way they 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 have this physical relationship. But as Jan Ching says at one point, happiness doesn't make a story. Have to, uh, uh, happiness is not a story. It's all about their misfortunes and struggles. So there's a lot of arguments and and bit of screaming and things like that. And but it, it feels real because the issues that they're faced with feel real. The frustrations feel real. Um, Tan Dran plays um, the director who was uh, also in uh, Love Education, the Sylvia Chang film. Um, it's very solid as Chang Ching's dad. Um, so the connection is that Sylvia Chang is actually Renee Liu's uh, mentor, um, which means that she uh, and I think also. I'm not sure if talent agent. I think at one point she was manager, her manager, um, and of course she also Sylvia Chan also co-wrote Happy Birthday. So they're a very close relationship. Um, so it makes sense that Ten John John, after appearing in Love Education, now appears in Renee Liu's film. Um, in 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 fact, Sylvia Chan of course gets a special thanks in the end credits. Um, so it does, there is a very sort of a, a bit of Sylvia Chan vibe here in the storytelling. Um, and but anyway, Ten John Juan, he's actually solid, but he's a director, so he's not really a great actor. He's never been a great actor, but I think both Sylvia Chang and both Renee Liu know how to use Ten John Juan's sort of wooden acting as a strength. They have him play these strong, silent type dads, northerner, um, um, sort of stoic, very serious, and and he they turn that characteristic of his personality into. They, they they make it part of his character. So, he, you know, he's actually quite solid in the film. Uh, Rene Lowe isn't a very flashy director. Um, it, the film looks beautiful, but mostly it's because of uh, Mark Lee Pingbing's very gorgeous cinematography. Um, it, it's very recognizable the way that he shoots. He has he lights every scene from above and then uses the um, 
the, the, the diffuse light from the reflection to light the character's faces, faces um, the way he shoots at a distance. Um, those are very recognizable Mark Lee traits, and, and it's a gorgeous-looking film. But mostly, uh, the camera movement don't really call much attention to themselves. Um, it's not a very flashy visual film. Um, at the end of the day, it's a love story, and it looks nice, but it's not a showy film it, it, on a directorial uh, aspect. So I think that um, Renee Leo is really a, mostly a storyteller working with writer and working with um, – she's one of the co-writers of the film, of course um, – working with actors and things like that instead of, you know, really um, moving the camera or doing these flashy tricks. Um, the biggest sort of uh, a stylish trick is that all the present scenes set in the present uh, in 2018 are on black and white. Um, so maybe that's the sort of biggest visual decision that she makes. Uh, and I think it's a good one. It's not a bad bad one at all. But um, from what I hear, uh, because Renee Liu attended a screening of the film in Taipei Film Festival... So those are the only chance outside of China that people – oh, whoops, that's like a national – okay, outside of mainland China that people can watch the film on a big screen because uh, now it's all on Netflix. And and she said a Q&A that actually she had originally meant to set the film in Taiwan. She, had, she, conceptualized, she actually had a concept for the film 10 years ago, and it was going to be set in Taiwan about this, this couple from – um, not the countryside, but from a small town, and then they go up to Taipei, and it's about their story in Taipei, which would be very, it's a very new Taiwan cinema film, because new Taiwan cinema is all about capturing that, a lot of new Taiwan cinema, um, especially Ho Shen or, or Edward Yang, they're all about capturing that 80s, when the 80s Taipei, when it was sort of like Hong Kong, when it was like the this economic miracle and it was a metropolis and beautiful neon lights and 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 um highways and motorcycles and huge roads and uh people struggling in a big city if you watch taipei story same similar kind of deal or you watch um uh what was ho Shen first film um uh one dust in it it's about a couple who live in jofun they moved to taipei and everything sort of changes for them so it's very much that kind of vein um, but I think she waited too long, and then the high-speed rail became a thing in Taipei, so it's no in Taiwan, so it was no longer really a feasible story to tell. Um, unless you know she could have just said it back in the in the past, but you know China money is hard to resist, so she was able. She ended up making the film in mainland China instead. But I would really like to see her pull off this film in Taiwan. It really does play like a Taiwanese film. The melancholy of it, um, that sort of. Um, um, down to earth vibe. Um, it, it's very Taiwanese romantic melodrama. So I really would like to see her do this in in Taiwan, but it's too bad. Um, so it's clear that Netflix bought this film not just because it was a huge, huge hit in China. It was huge, um, but I think it really can travel around the world because there's a lot of um, universal emotions in there. Like I said, the struggles that these people face are very real. Um, you know, love versus money. Uh, I think millennials all kind of deal with this. Um, perhaps even the the previous generation. Um, anyone, you know, any country where you see people from small town going to a big city, one sort of big center, and then trying to trying to become a success there, and and trying to balance that with with love. I think those people can really relate to the story. Um, but yet, there's a lot of cultural specific specific specificity. For example, the, 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 they, they deal with the, the New Year rush back home. Um, I guess in Western countries, that's sort of Christmas. But in China, that would be New Year's. Um, 
but still, you know, I think it works for an international audience uh, who are open-minded and, and don't, you know, don't have any sort of preconception about what they think a Chinese film should be or shouldn't be. Um, still, I wish that Rene Lo can move on to someone something else now. Happy birthday to one that got away. Um, tempting heart, Sylvia Chang, the one that got away. Um, uh, uh, now, uh, Us and Them, the one that got away. Um, I, I, it's a very decent directorial debut, but I think I would like to see how Renee Leo deals with other topics, other stories, if she's going to take a bigger chance now that this film's a huge hit, or is she going to continue on this road where, you know, Romantic drama is 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 a relatively easy sell when your name is Renee Liu and you have a huge huge following and people will watch pretty much anything you make. But I would like to see um, what she continues to do from here. Um, I don't know if I foresee a very uh, big directorial career for Renee Liu. Um, I haven't haven't seen enough sort of diversity in her storytelling range to really be able to foresee this huge career for her uh nor do i see a very like strong directorial voice for that um but this is a very decent film of course it's it's um i highly recommend it for especially fans of the two stars and of course um people who just like to see good chinese films i prefer to think of this as a life-changing opportunity Countdown begins now. And for our next review this week, Hanyan's Animal World. Um, now, Kevin, you guys have not seen this yet because uh, it's not getting a release in Hong Kong until later this week, right? Yeah, we get it on Thursday, so we'll be catching it this week. So no spoilers, Paul. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to not spoil anything. Um, And also, if uh, this this got a release in the States uh, two weeks ago, and I was fortunate enough to catch it, but uh, if you missed it because it looked like it only played uh, cinematically for about a week before they pulled it, this has gotten a Netflix deal. Uh, apparently, and it's supposed to be coming to in Netflix internationally outside of China uh, sometime this month, I believe, although I haven't seen a release date for it. Maybe maybe I'm incorrect on the the timing of that, but I, from the articles I read, it seemed to allude that uh, it should be coming out fairly quickly. Um, and I guess because you guys are getting a theatrical release, that means that uh, Netflix Hong Kong is kind of included in the outside of China deal, right? Yeah, I I don't. I'm looking at the story right now, but I don't. Um, let's see, all territories outside of China, and I guess Hong Kong is a part of China. So yeah, since we have a local theatrical distributor, I don't think we'll get it on Netflix the same time as everyone else. All right. Yeah. So anyway, if, like I said, if you're looking forward to seeing this, um, you should be able to find it on Netflix near you in the very near future. So this is coming from director Han Yan. And I guess the first thing that, uh, well, let me, let me talk about the story. The story follows uh, Zheng Kaitsi, played by Li Yifeng, as a down-on-his-luck youth employed at a game center. Uh, his mother is hospitalized and in a coma, and his prospects for marrying his longtime girlfriend, played by Zhou Dongyu, seem slim. So it's our second Zhou Dongyu film for the week. <laughs> She's everywhere. <laughs> um, maybe she needs to get together with Luz Koo. 
Um, but when his <laughs> friend asks him to co-sign as the guarantor for a property deal, he suddenly finds himself caught up in a dark underground world of strange gambling aboard a mysterious ship called Destiny. Um, so for some of you, if you don't know about this film, but that plot kind of sounds familiar, it's because it is. It is taken directly from the manga and anime known as uh, Tobaku Mokushiroku Kaiji, or in English, Ultimate Survivor Kaiji. Um, and in some places where I've read about this film, they've said it's kind of loosely adapted from that. And I'm going to say, no, nope, it is, in fact, a complete retelling <laughs> of that. It's official. Yeah, it's official yeah. adaptation. It yeah, is. Yeah. Um, if you look at the trailer, that might be kind of hard to see because they've got all this fancy clown stuff going on with a guy, you know, with uh, uh, Zenkaichi kind of in the clown makeup, looking across between the clown from It and the Joker somehow, and uh, doing, like, you know, all this fancy stuff with uh, CGI monsters. And I'm going to get to that in a bit. Um, but, yeah, the cast here, uh, Lee Fung from films like Mission Milano, Founding of an Army, Mr. Six, um, is the title of character, uh, Zenkaichi, who is the stand-in for Kaiji. Uh, Zhou Dong Yu from, you know, films like Kevin just mentioned, and of course Soulmate, Thousand Faces of uh, Dungeon. This is not what I expected more recently. And she's kind of a new character here um, who's not um, in the, the manga or anime as his nurse girlfriend Liu Chang. And I'll talk a little, little bit about the integration of her role and giving a bit more of this background um, to the main character. But I guess the big standout for many people is going to be, of course, Michael Douglas, who's here, you know, as in, in a similar release time as uh, Ant-Man and Wasp, of course. I don't know if there's coincidence involved with that or not, but he is, plays Mr. Anderson, uh, sort of <laughs> the heavy here, and I'll talk a little bit more about uh, his role as well. So, yes, as I said, this film is basically a readaptation of uh, of the anime Ultimate Survivor Kaiji or the manga, and it's basically telling the first chapter of Challenges, which in the anime takes place on a ship called uh, Espoir, or that's French for Hope. Um, so if you've seen the anime, I haven't read the manga, but I have seen the anime before. It's about the first nine episodes, uh, and that's what the film is, is focused on here. This was also created as a live-action film, um, also called Kaiji. I think it's Kaiji the Ultimate Gambler, um, starring uh, Fujiwara uh, Tatsuya. And I have not seen that, unfortunately. And I did want to watch it before going into this review for comparison, but it's not on Netflix, it's not on Crunchyroll, it's not anywhere I could find it streaming, and I didn't have time to order a copy from abroad. So I hope to get to that. So have you seen that one, Kevin? Yeah, there's two movies actually, two kaiji movies. Um, yeah, the first and I, second one, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I remember the first one was fine, is is reasonably clever, but I think the second one was not as good. But yeah, it. The only thing I remember is Fujiwara Tatsuya just overacting the <laughs> hell out of everything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a reasonably clever movie, mostly because the actual concept from the comic book is clever, not because, you know, the script writing is terribly clever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're enjoyable sort of, you know, roller coaster, roller coaster rides, really. Not Nothing that special. Yeah. So I think here, too, if, again, if you've encountered the story before of what happens on the ship, there's not going to be a lot for you that's new, uh, with the exception of some of the visual elements. So all the key plot moments are the same, the key characters are the same, although the names have changed. 
um, with perhaps the exception of Michael Douglas's character, who I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but the gambles are the same. This is based on the, the this first challenge is based on a cane they call um, restricted rock paper scissors. And in summary, it basically uses uh, twelve cards, with four of the cards being rock, four of the cards being paper, four of the cards being scissors, and the participants are forced to go around and play a card. And if they tie, the cards are lost and they're down to fewer cards. If they win, they're able to get one of three stars from their opponent. If they lose, they have to sacrifice a star. And their goal is at the end of four hours, they have to have depleted all of their cards, and they still have to have at least three stars remaining. If they do not, bad things happen. So um, that's the essential premise of restricted rock, paper, scissors um, as they play it out here. And it's a it's an interesting concept, as Kevin says. Um, it's used interesting in the film, and it's interesting to see how these characters have to quickly learn about the game and then figure out their ways of going about it. So this isn't a case of, I mean, it's a gambling film, and it has gambling tropes in it, but it isn't a case of, like, God of Gamblers, per se, or especially something like Saint of Gamblers. It's more about these characters trying to be clever, trying to figure out aspects of, you know, ratios and percentages to win and, and balance and things like this. So all of that, I think, is fairly interesting, especially if you've not encountered this story before. Uh, I think you'll be very entertained by that. But where this film kind of goes astray, I think, is there's an overabundance of needless CGI thrown in in places. And this includes the clown sequences, which are a completely new aspect. The, the idea is that this character is basically talking about himself a lot, and he says he's crazy, and he goes off into these daydreams where he becomes this kind of clown hero, and he goes around and everybody he sees is like an evil monster, and they morph, and so you've got the, you know, the, 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 a lot of the CGI stuff going on, um, but it's in his head for the most part. And so a lot of times you're never too sure whether sometimes when he's thinking about something, is it really happening or is that just something in his mind? Uh, and that kind of adds new elements and a lot of visual money thrown at the screen, but I question the necessity of a lot of it if it really does much for for the main character um beyond that you know it's 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 just more of a look what i can do cinematically feel to it it doesn't i don't really feel it adds a lot to the central story but i guess they figured it's an adaptation and since pretty much everything they take in including a lot of the twist moments um a lot of the you know the, the strategies used are all exactly the same they felt that they wanted to you know do something else rather than just be a complete carbon copy but again, where it succeeds the most, I think, is when it's doing that, when it's telling just the straightforward story. And it does that in just over two hours. And it's really good at doing that because basically they're taking what was about nine episodes of 25-minute or 20-minute anime segments and compressing that down a bit, cutting out a lot of the fat because there's a lot of redundancy in uh, anime, especially later in this, this series. It'll be because I'm interested, interesting to see if this goes on to do sequels. Because later in the series, there's a lot of redundancy. You know, I mean, for those of you who are familiar with these shows, which will draw out like a single move, a single turn, or a single action over a long period of time, um, and, and it becomes kind of like a filler, uh, this series is guilty of that. So the film does a nice job of 
condensing it down and, and making it a bit tighter. It is a bit too explainy at times, especially like when they're explaining some of the card moves and, and, and some of the percentages and things. And But that's a carryover from the anime as well. But overall, I think it f moves at a fairly brisk pace. I was very entertained for the full two hours and was never overly bored. The one nice change that I think is that they'd make this into a big sort of international cast. So while the main characters are all speaking Chinese, what they end up doing is using a bit of tech and uh, not really a gimmick. So it's not like a Star Trek Universal translator. But basically they have people translating on the fly with this tech. Um, and so anybody who's talking has a number and you can basically kind of, you know, tune into their number if you, need, if you don't understand the language they're speaking. And, you know, it's a, it's a very simple sort of visual thing. So you see everybody kind of wearing these things. But it gives the chance for the cast to feel much more big and international. And, of course, as I said, you've got the inclusion of uh, Michael Douglas um, amongst all of that. <laughs> So that, so that makes it a lot more fun. The thing about the, the visuals, too, is they really go all out in terms of the artistic design, which is great. Uh, so the, the ship here, I don't think it's a, it's a standard cruise ship. It looks more like a big cargo ship that they use. Um, so in the anime, uh, the Espoir was a, like a standard luxury cruise ship, but this looks like a, a big container ship. But they do a great overhaul of like the gambling area, um, they've got a big tiger that you can see kind of in the in the trailer. The anime, it's kind of just kind of a standard cruise ship. It's it's less interesting by design. So, um, you know, a good job in terms of the art direction here. And, uh, you know, by the end, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but it clearly paves the way for part two. Um, and I'm curious to see if they will follow along because the second challenge, which happens later in a in a building um i i'd be curious to see if they go with that because it, it wasn't quite as exciting for me as as what happens on the ship but there is very much you know there is a mid an almost a immediate mid-credit scene by the end um so be sure you stay for that which sets up for a second part which um i'm guessing the film's doing fairly well because apparently it knocked jurassic world off its perch um in its opening weekend in china so uh, that's good signs that we might get a sequel. We'll see. I would say if you're a fan of the Kaiji series, you should find this entertaining, if not new. Um, but especially if you're not, I think you'll appreciate um, the style. I think you'll appreciate the game and some of the twists uh, that are thrown in. The inclusion of Zodong Yu as a character. So here, um, she's this nurse girlfriend who doesn't appear in, in the Japanese version. And I think that's in part to set up um, the fact that uh, Zenkaichi's mother, who's in a coma, um, you know, she's helping to take care of her and to show that, you know, Zenkaichi is really kind of down on his luck. He's got no money. He's got no way to take care of his mom. You know, he works in a very dead-end job, and he just can't seem to to get ahead in life. Um, and then his when his friend tricks him, and he ends up getting sucked into this sort of underground gambling world, you know, he's a victim. He's very much a victim. And I guess this is to sort of toe the line with ideas and perhaps censorship in China because there's been a push for anti-gambling um, in, in political circles for a while. I mean, it's really impacted Macau in, in, in many ways. And so to have the main character not be sort of a hardcore gambler 
Um, but to make him more sympathetic, I think, is is a conscious choice that they're making here for, you know, just so they don't run afoul of censorship issues, perhaps. Uh, because in the anime, I mean, Kaiji is basically a young punk gambler who's in debt and making bad decisions. And, you know, he kind of just has to go with the flow initially and, and, and take a lot of hard knocks. But he is a gambler, and a lot of the... The, the emphasis of the anime is on the evils and the the, the 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 badness of gambling and how you get sucked into it and how it just makes you more greedy and, and things like that. And that's kind of not really the emphasis here. Um, and instead, they kind of add on these CGI um, clown superhero aspects, which are kind of weird and, and just not necessary, I think, for the story. But they're there, and I guess they look pretty and they help sell the film. Um, Michael Douglas... I guess we'll end talking with him. Um, stunt casting, perhaps. But one of the things I'll say is, you know, at least with Chinese movies, with like this or The Great Wall or uh, what was the one? Flowers of something, Flowers of Shanghai or the one with um, Christian Bale. Do you remember, Kevin? Uh, Flowers of War. Flowers of War, yeah. Uh, you know, at least stuff like that, they're giving actors real roles. And it's not just like a minim minimal like walk-on get some screen time but no lines no dialogue or if they were we're going to cut them out because we just want to get airtime in china because of some contractual agreement so i mean i look at something like this and yeah he might be getting a payday but at least they gave him some stuff to do and he's chewing the scenery and let's hope he comes back for a sequel because it's fun you know it's fun to see stuff like that and and when they are giving actors a chance to play and to perform and and to to not just be a walk-on face that you're going to then use as a as a minimal selling point or as a contractual plug right i'll be curious to see what uh, kevin has to say about that when we come back next time and, and he's seen the film so yeah it's it it is what it is i'm i'm curious too to see the role that because i'm not really sure what character michael douglas is standing in for in terms of of the actual anime because there's it, it could be one character or another character um and and i haven't decided it might it might just be completely their own thing um that they're they're wanting to do but it'll be interesting to see you know wh where that goes as well if we do get a sequel kevin your thoughts i knew you haven't seen it yet but your thoughts on hanyan himself as a as a director, he's only got a few films under his belt. You know, he did the one with uh, Angela Baby. Was it first time? I think and, first time. Yeah. Um, he's done. He's done a couple others. I I'm not a big fan. I mean, he actually did the uh, the version of Winds of September that never got released, which apparently was really really good, but it was never released because it never passed censorship. Um, uh, I wasn't. I didn't care for first time. Um, had the film after that, Goodbye, Mr. Tumor was okay um visually it was very interesting and I, that's what i'm expecting here but otherwise i mean this from the looks of it from what i've seen in the trailer it looks like it could be a big leap visually for him but from what it sounds like they don't really add to the story other than this sort of the cgi thing that's what i think of cgi so um sure he's a he's rising as a commercial director but um i don't still don't see him yet as a director that i particularly need to like pay big attention of course he makes commercial films so therefore every one of his films is worth noticing for from my position but i don't see still don't seem as a director that i can get particularly excited for mm. do you remember um, in the in the 
the Japanese version, does it sound like they did a similar thing? Was it like on a ship and playing the restricted um, rock, paper, scissors? Or did um, they do something I, different? No, there's definitely a game like that. Uh, there's a card game, I remember. Um, so the character you're talking about, the Michael Douglas character you're talking about, from what I've seen in the trailer, it seems like he might be a sim- similar to a character in uh, in the Japanese version, who's the sort of the, bad, the big baddie. Uh, but he also participates in the game in in the film um, because he's sort of like the big baddie, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's was there a game about like walking across a beam or something, a big beam, uh, like yeah. uh, See, at a great height. That's the second chapter, um, so that's not that's not in this film. Uh, this oh, no, that's is, in this the first is, film. This is all in the in the on the ship for this one, so. I don't even remember if the the Japanese film was set on a ship. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't remember. As it, as it as it follows in the like the manga and the anime, the 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 first challenge thing is the card game, which happens on a ship out in international waters, uh, which they have to do because of yeah, the, the bad stuff yeah. that happens. And then yeah. the second set of challenges is the beam and another card game that happens in this. Uh, See, skyscraper all, or hotel all that all that got covered in in kaiji one oh, okay so they they crammed then, a lot yeah, in there yeah. <laughs> they they didn't know because it was a game by game by game um and there's this whole thing where he has to work in a mine or something and no uh the first the, the japanese film i think is sort of best stuff so a hmm. lot of the games but I'm, I'm not sure what kind of games if you're the games you're talking about from a Japanese film isn't in the Chinese version, so I'm wondering what kind of games they leave in the Chinese version in a 130-minute film, which is the same running time as the Japanese one. Right? Yeah, no, it's just the it's just the the playout of the restricted uh, rock paper scissors card game. For, it's only uh, one game. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's it you know it's it's it, it's following. I, I I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the Japanese one. Maybe they condensed it down. But in this, it's it's not you know it's like Kaiji has to or sorry Zenkaisi has to <laughs> has to learn how to play the game. Um, he you know he loses some hands and you know it's like a lot of reversals throughout. So it's it's multiple games, and then him learning, him teaming up with people, um, and then you know making his way through the night of the four hours of of this game. Um, and you know, again, the twists are there, the strategies are there, um, exactly as they were done in the, the anime. So it's like nine episodes of anime pushed into this one film. It sounds like in the Japanese film they took key challenges from across the anime and put that into the first film. So that's it. That's an interesting difference. So um, yeah, in that case, I think you have a lot more fun with the Japanese version because you get. It's like three different games in, in I think just one film, and I I forgot about I pretty much forgot about all about the second film, but I imagine it's pretty much the same thing over again. Hmm. Well, as I said, uh, this should be coming to a Netflix near you if you are interested to see it, and I would say you know it's uh, entertaining, so do check it out. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com. 
and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us at our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at eastswests. As always, please do follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing as he bounces around from one film festival to the next. Uh, so, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, you can read me on uh, Discovery and Silkro Magazine on uh, Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragon Air- Airlines. Uh, July, I wrote about Love, Simon and Blockers in one column, and I then wrote about... Um, I always forget about the World Film Club film. Um, and then something else. Uh, well, I wrote about a bunch of movies in those magazines. Um, and then you can read my monthly sort of IFE side feature on discovery.cathaypacific.com. Right now, there's an interview with director Oxai Pang uh, about The Big Call that is on the website now. If you look up, if you search like The Big Call, you probably find it. Um, and then uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. I also have a website called Asia and Cinema, which I am still planning to pick up in some time. I don't know when, um, uh, but it's there, asiaandcinema.com. Uh, but you can email me uh, at kevin at asiaandcinema.com if you want to um, send any complaints or or compliments, whatever. Yeah, work-wise, um, this month I have, uh, I think, three different films. Well, The Looming Storm just played New York Film Festival, Asian Film Festival already. This month, um, Suburban Bird, which is a small little indie Chinese film that I, I um, that is done by uh, someone from Baptist U, um, Baptist University, which is the same film school I went to. Um, that premieres at Xining first film festival in Xining this month and I think you'll be playing at uh, Locarno Film Festival next month as well which is a huge deal because Locarno is like the like the European art house film festival um, and then uh, August 2nd well you also see Men on the Dragon which is the Francis Ng comedy uh, I think it's having its world premiere at the New York Asian Film Festival and it comes out in Hong Kong on August 2nd so those are the uh, sort of two subtitling projects that are being rolled out into cinemas um and i hear that um uh, our shining days the uh youth comedy that i did for edgo um is being aired in netflix in some countries so if you can search for that you'll be able to, you might be i think you will see my name in the end credits uh and that's it yeah all right excellent um Always, always, please do check out our friends at the podcast on fire network and all the good work that they're doing Our next show, episode uh, 259, I think I'm going to be talking about The Rock in uh, the movie Skyscraper, which, if the poster is any indication, is set in Hong Kong. (laughs) But as we all know, (laughs) not shot in Hong Kong. (laughs) Yes, it's set in Hong Kong, but not at all shot in Hong Kong. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, so I'll be talking about that. Are you going to get out to see that, Kevin, or...? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course I'll see it. And uh, I will um, talk about, I think next week I'll talk about a new Taiwan film called Secrets and Hot Spring, which uh, is a mix of Taiwan and Hong Kong stars, older Hong Kong stars and younger Taiwan stars. Um, and that opens day and date here in uh, in Hong Kong with Taiwan. So uh, I'll probably check that out. Check right. that out. We'll be talking about that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen Podcast saying we wish you good viewing as always. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Thank you.
Ha! Uh-huh.